transform lives in Africa through research. And then I realized that also aligns with my own personal kind of goal, which is that if I leave anyone behind, I would be leaving myself behind. So I found this is to be a great conduit through which both I and Africans can grow and I can make an impact through my work. Hi and welcome to the podcast Making an Impact. This is the podcast where all aspects of working in the global impact sector are discussed. My name is Helen Rask and I will be the host in this podcast. In this episode, we will meet Marilyn Wamkoya, who is the Senior Data Analyst at the Africa Population Health Research Center in Kenya. Marilyn will let us know how research are used in the field of development, how her research have had a positive impact on the African continent, and why she chose to become a researcher. So, let's get started. Today I'm very happy and honored to have Marilyn Wamukoya, who is the Senior Data Analyst at Africa Population Health Research Center in Nairobi. Marilyn, welcome to the podcast, Making an Impact. Thank you very much, Helen. So, as African uh, Population Health Research Center is, is doing research, maybe you could mm-hmm. start by explaining a bit what impact does that have in the field of development? Um, in my experience thus far, uh, research impacts development in three ways. Uh, the first thing is that development is driven by the implementation of policies. And in the ideal world, the proper world, all policies should be driven by evidence that is generated from research and then disseminated to policymakers and development partners. Um, the second way is that research often provides a framework for subsequent implementation and monitoring of interventions, again, by both government and development bodies. And a third very curious thing I found during data collection exercises is that research also enlightens the respondents themselves about the scientific or the research question you have come to ask them. It it gets them to think deeply about their own sociodemographic and health issues. So, yeah, I think those are the three ways. And uh, what do you do as a senior data analyst? So, as a senior data analyst, I'm actually engaged with the data throughout its life cycle, or the curation of data throughout its life cycle. So, we start, say, at the fundraising stage, involved in proposal development to generate resources uh, for the various ongoing projects. And then there's the project implementation stage where there's guidance of sample size estimation, study design and hypothesis, and the development of analytical plans. And from there you move to data management and quality assurance. This is where you now clean and audit data that is now coming in during the data collection process. And then the data documentation which is where you create data about the data so that you can publish it. When anyone wants to use the data, they need to understand the study, the background, and so that's where data documentation comes in. The next stage is the statistical analysis, where you provide exploratory and inferential analysis 
that relate back to the study question and the study design and the study hypothesis. And then publication and report writing, of course. This is uh, scientific manuscripts. This may be methodological or application of already developed methods. But a very big key part here is build capacity building of fellow researchers at various stages of the curation of data. And I, I find myself engaged in these uh, six activities almost on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and uh, you said you capacity build other uh, researchers. Can you explain a bit more what that entails? There are two ways. Huh? Uh, the simplest, most formal way is to set up a, a training or a workshop and state that from this time to this time I'll be teaching on this statistical method or this uh, uh, research concept having to do with data or how to uh, protect your data or things like this, how to anonymize data. So you, you set up a formal thing and you have people attend and you disseminate this knowledge to them. The second way is through mentorship of junior researchers. They could be in data uh, science themselves or they could be in the research field themselves, but just to constantly ensure that the knowledge gained is always transferred to someone else. What is your educational background and how has that help, helped you in your <laughs> professional life? Okay, so I hold a Master of Public Health degree from Emory University in Atlanta in environmental and occupational health, I know, <laughs> and biostatistics. So how that helps in my career is that everyone who was doing that master's program had to do biostatistics modules. And that's what, sorry, the, but in, what does that mean, biostatistics? Biostatistics, the statistics involving uh, bio data, data about people. Okay. Uh, so, so it's focused on research about people. Remember this was a master Master of Public Health. Okay, so, yes, so having done those modules is when, you know, my passion grew and an interest grew and I realized, uh, I think this is where I belong. And that's how, that's how my career has progressed from then on. And how did you get your first job? Ah, so after I finished my master's, I came back home to Kenya. And believe it or not, I saw an advertisement in a newspaper in the local newspaper. And uh, interestingly, that was almost exactly 10 years ago. So on Monday, I celebrated 10 years at African Population and Health Research Center. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And why did you choose to do research in the first place? To be honest, it's because where I found myself. This is where I found myself. And then when I found myself here, I realized that I actually do believe in the organization's vision to transform lives in Africa through research. And then I realized that also aligns with my own personal kind of goal, to, which is that if I leave anyone behind, I would be leaving myself behind. So I found this is to be a great conduit through which both I and Africans can grow and I can make an impact through my work. Have, do you have an example? of uh, impact? Yes. Um, well, it's ha one of the ones I can think of most has to do with mentoring a junior researcher. Actually, more than actual uh, 
duplication or anything like that. Uh, our data collectors, because we work in two slums in Nairobi, our data collectors are often recruited from those two slums because they reside there. There's one of them who expressed to me an interest in writing almost developmentally about the life experience of the slum so that we hear a voice that's reflecting what we see in the data. And uh, I think my relationship with him and working with him and the things he has been able to write about life in the slums, I think I've made an impact there. So what is life in the slums? Uh, life in the slums. According to him, and I, he had an article titled uh, The Lie of the Urban Advantage. You know when you reside in rural areas in um, somewhere like Kenya, and you go to school, and the dream is to come to Nairobi, you know, the big city, for opportunities, for work, or even further education. And then you get here and realize that perhaps the advantage lay where you are. You know, you're, you're fighting with other people for jobs. You're, everybody's here to get those jobs. Everybody's here to further themselves. And also the cost of living, you understand, is not what you expected. Then you find yourself residing in a slum to make, and, to make ends meet. It's just, it's a very, it's a very different place to find yourself than what you imagined when you were still in the rural areas. What is the most rewarding about your job? The people that I mentor. <laughs> yeah. The people that I, I mentor and talk to every day and work with every day. What is the most challenging about your job? Um, the continuing gender gap in data science professions. So I'll give you an example. At this center, in general, the ratio, there are nine males to every 10 females. But within the data unit, so to speak, the data science team, there are 14 males to every 10 females. And I would like to see that gap narrow and match what we see in other professional areas. Why do you think that's the way it is at this point in time? At this point in time, I think it was just various things. Um, maybe young girls not feeling like they're comfortable in going into these fields to begin with. Uh, but I'm, I feel like that is changing now. And as years pass, we'll have more, when more young girls pursuing the sciences, the STEM, uh, if they hold an interest in it. And uh, at this time, I can't think of anything else, but I think it starts at a very young, a very early stage. If I think of my own life course, there are very many things that happen at the earlier stages that could have blocked me, except I just jumped over them. Do you have an example? <laughs> um, let me see. One of the most, and I just thought about this, it's interesting, you should ask. I remember getting the highest score in the world on an A-level mathematics exam administered by Cambridge. And, and I thought, you know, it would be a big deal. <laughs> um, and I went to school and I expected my mathematics teacher to be excited, you know, an almost perfect score, 99.9. But instead, actually, he, he, I think he asked me some weird question about my boyfriend or my social life or something he had, he had seen, I don't know. And I was kind of taken aback. 
by that. So it's just my decision to say this is what I want to do and then do it and all other noise is noise. Have you met any other uh, like hindrance or, or uh, obstacles in, in your pursuing of your career as being a female? The, big, the, the, big, the biggest ones have been what I just mentioned right now. Um, let me see, in primary school, in primary school, I guess it's fine. Everybody wants you to pass <laughs> and get your good grades. And um, but in, in in the professional in the professional setting, that's where the most interesting things have occurred in terms of being a woman uh, in STEM in science. So, uh, what can I think of an example here? The biggest thing I can think of, and I'm using someone else's term, is that when you're a woman, so sometimes you could end up, if you're not careful, doing office housework. So where you're in a team, but you're the one who is volunteered to do thankless office tasks, like uh, taking notes, uh, making or serving tea or coffee, uh, picking up cups after people have left a meeting, Organizing teams off-site, like if you go to a team building, you're almost like the the nanny, or you serve on lower-ranking committees. But again, overcoming this comes from knowing what it is you want and why it is you're there. And also some diplomacy on my part. <laughs> what was your best day at work? Do you have a good example? My best day at work, the day... I, and I'm back to this again. The day my mentee got his uh, blog published at the center's website, and then his piece was featured in the center's newsletter. That uh, that was great news to me. I I could see how how overjoyed he was because I'm sure he could he didn't believe that this could be him, that his name could be on a byline. And that, that was one of the greatest days of my life here at the center. What is the most needed skill in your field of expertise, you would say? I'd say there are two things. So there are soft skills and hard skills. So the hard skill one really needs for me is data management and auditing. If you have any data that doesn't go through this stage of the life cycle meticulously, eventually it's of no use to anyone not the study community, not the research organization, not government, not development partners, nobody. So there needs to be some kind of meticulous attention to detail when data is being cleaned and managed and audited, even before it reaches the stage of being analyzed to produce results. And a soft skill, like I said, is diplomacy. So just because of the field that I navigate, this is, this is a skill I've learned to develop over time, because most often times people are not even aware of the impact of their actions or their words when you are in these settings. Do you have an example, concrete example? Um, I, I don't know if this will work. Let me see. So, um, because of the gender issue, so there was a, a meeting and. Um, I was the only female in the meeting. And um, one of my colleagues goes, Marilyn will take notes. 
and you know I could have boycotted or walked out or said something snappish or anything but I, I asked him why did you suggest me and you know he sat back and thought about it and you know you see the wheels turning in his head he knows why it was it's just how the, pro- the programming has been programmed the programming that we need to over overwrite and I said yes there's five of us in this room why doesn't someone else stick their minutes Yeah. What was the answer? It, it was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> it, it's usually not intentional, you know? It's just something that's programmed into you for a long time until someone actually brings it to your attention. You don't realize it's happened. Is that something you uh, make people aware of constantly or, or do you keep quiet about it? Um. I wouldn't say when it happens, which is rarer and rarer these days, when it happens, I often suggest, why can't we have X and X to the minutes because I did them last time. Obviously, you don't, everyone has to do it, but it can't always be you as the female on the team, you know? What is your recommendations to others who wants to work in the field of research or to have a similar career path as, as you have had so far? So I can speak to my career path. Uh, I'll say this. You must have great data management skills and amazing attention to detail. But you must also be wide open to be engaged in non-data related activities especially those activities that could later impact the quality of the data. So be involved at the stage where they are designing the questionnaire that will be used to collect data. Uh, get to see and interrogate what kinds of questions are going to be asked to the occupants and see, well, will, this question, will answering this question really lead towards, you know, understanding the study, the design, the um, hypothesis that you've put forth, just being involved in other non-data-related activities rather than, you know, being on your laptop on, on data from eight to five every day, you know? As a woman, uh, if you want to do, as you have mentioned, you have been, been uh, talking about these issues, um, the gender, more into this gender equality theme mm-hmm. um, and I wonder if, if um, w- as, a, as a young woman today uh, you want to do uh, you want to have a, a proper uh, career uh, as a researcher um, right. what do you think uh, what would you suggest what would be the main main thing that you would suggest to a woman who wants to uh, who's currently for instance in her Uh, postgraduate studies or uh, and want mm. to move into the work life where mm-hmm. what shall she do first I'd ask her why so most of research is not glamorous <laughs> there's a lot of plodding away a lot of writing of grants a lot of editing of questionnaires and training of field work workers and going to the uh, to the field to collect data and all that. The most glamorous part is when you get your name on a publication. So when you finally understand what are the goals, what is it, why do you want to do research? When that is very, very clear to you, then research becomes amazing. It becomes the most fulfilling experience of your life. The whole entire process, 
from the beginning of a project to the end, from the meetings you have to attend, from disseminating findings to policymakers, from talking to government officials about interesting findings you've made, sitting down and looking at data, doing the data analysis. But you have to be very clear on why you want to do this. Otherwise, it could lead to great frustration. More of the structural uh, thing uh, that you mentioned, mm -hmm. being a woman, mm -hmm. constantly being targeted for, like, uh, you know, doing the minutes or not being included in certain uh, environments. What do you... Mm -hmm. shall, shall, I mean, how shall they move forward? How, who, the, uh, not us? everyone is uh, as not everyone is as uh, outspoken as you have been in those uh, in those situations. Uh, yes. The sec okay, so if you cannot speak out in that situation, perhaps you can speak out in a side situation where you, you, you speak to the person or the supervisor and express to them, you know, I don't feel valued as part of the team when you constantly assign me this particular role and I feel that uh, that undervaluing is spilling over to the rest of the team. They see me as just a person who does this. So you can always talk on the sides. You, you can let the thing go on as it's going on and then on the side. But again, diplomacy is needed in, in such kinds of situations. But really, an interesting thing I learned last year is that going forward, as data science becomes what it's becoming, you hear it everywhere, everywhere these days, data science teams will have to be diverse. Every color, every gender, every race, everything will have to be... If you have a team, you're going to have to represent everyone as best as you can. Just because what's happening now is that with artificial intelligence and machine learning, the machines are learning our prejudices, uh, according to some of the articles that we've been reading here. So we need to make sure that if a machine is learning, it's learning from six different types of people. Is that well, six is an arbitrary number that I picked, but yeah. <laughs> but is that, uh, can you, this is an interesting uh, area. Can you elaborate mm -hmm. a bit more on that? Uh, <laughs> okay, so I wrote uh, a piece that was published, and I can send you the link later if you remind me, um, which was called Frankenstein's Data Scientist, where it, it became apparent to me, what I learned was that you can't have really a data scientist, that's, that person is so perfect and impossible and requires hundreds of years of education and millions of years of work experience to become that person. So what you need is teams, teams of people, each doing something in data science, contributing to one thing. You, you have a data journalist, a data analyst, a data visualization expert, a data architect, all working together. And this is key because a team at uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, MIT, found that an uh, artificial intelligence income prediction was shockingly racist and sexist because of the data that it had been fed. So if you have a team that's diverse, they can intervene and adjust the algorithms so that the AI's predictive abilities can represent this, the, the community more accurately particularly disenfranchised groups. And is that being done? 
Um, I think I think that people are starting to take steps in that direction. How do you really, ensure? How do you ensure that it's it's in your research that is properly mm -hmm. balanced? Well, for one, uh, FPHRC is still setting up its data science team. We are setting that up now. Now that we have been collecting data for almost 15 years, we have enough data to where we want to move to predictive and prescriptive analytics. So this means using present data to make predictions about what will happen, which means the team that we are gathering now, the group we are gathering now, is, is a diverse group of individuals from different backgrounds who can lend who can lend their own experiences and ensure that everyone, to the best of our abilities, is represented in such algorithms. Thank you very much, Marilyn, <laughs> for all the information. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you found it interesting to hear how research fits into and are being used in the global impact sector. If you want more information, please check out our website www.impactpool.org. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.